It will cost something to walk slow in the parade of the ages, while excited men of time rush about confusing motion with progress. But it will pay in the long run, and the true Christian is not much interested in anything short of that. That's a quote from A.W. Tozer. Hi, Doug Hooley here again. I hope you're in good health and navigating your way through these troubled days we're living in with wisdom. You're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number eight in the series titled, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. Have I ever told you that I used to live next to a man who said he once served as a pastor? He believed that it was not important to understand Scripture. Really, he believed that. He thought the Holy Spirit interacts mystically with the contents of the Bible to provide what he called spiritual nutrition. When one receives proper spiritual nutrition, the Holy Spirit gives them underlying wisdom necessary to navigate one's way through life. When one needs guidance, they will subconsciously draw on the Word that's been absorbed into their mind. What great news for those who are lazy (laughs) and or hate studying. Unfortunately, my former neighbor is not alone in his beliefs. The idea that the Bible has magical properties is far from unique to him. Those who say it isn't important to study the Bible at all, but to merely read it, believe that the human mind is like a filter that's designed to hold on to what's needed as the content of the Bible is passed through it. Since humans have a limited capacity to retain things, daily filtering or reading needs to occur to provide what's needed by our spirits. The Bible is spiritual nutrition. Being fed means reading or hearing the words of the Bible. Some encourage reading passages repeatedly to gain understanding. I can still hear the words of a pastor. Let's all read the book of Galatians each day for one month and then come back together and discuss what we've discovered. Repetition Repetition can be beneficial when meditating on Scripture, no doubt. Indeed, I've found that the greater understanding can come when one memorizes entire chapters of the Bible. However, it's far better to meditate on Scripture when you know what it means. The idea that God's Word is alive in a mystical way is very popular. Just take a quick look at today's Christian and Bible-related websites. Here's a couple of quotes. The first one. The more you expose yourself to it, the Bible, the more it will expose itself to you. The second one. People, read the book, and not piecemeal or with a Vines Expository Dictionary at your elbow. Just read it. (laughs) It's clear in Scripture that it's only the Holy Spirit that makes it possible to perceive and understand the truth found in Scripture. This truly is the mystical X factor. But, on the other end of the spectrum from the wisdom through Scripture osmosis bunch, 
are those that believe that once the Holy Spirit unlocks the ability to for you to understand the truth found in the Bible, it's the obligation of the one reading to use their God-given brains to seek and understand the intended meaning of the original author, or capital A, author, God. Otherwise, why wouldn't the Holy Spirit just bypass our reading the Bible altogether? Why can't we just sit on it or something? Why not just zap believers with supernatural knowledge? If we don't need to understand what we're reading, why not just read the Bible in Latin or look at the original Greek and Hebrew words, having never learned either language? Surely the Holy Spirit can translate it for us, can't he? And use it just to make us wise? As an authentic child of God rethinks what may not be an authentic belief, he or she must do so in light of the authentic truth contained in Scripture. And there are many ways to study the Bible. Angela, my wife, and I left a church after attending there for several years. We stuck it out because we had come to love some of the people there that we'd gotten to know, and because several members of our family, including our grandkids, were attending there and we wanted to support them. We finally made the very painful decision to leave that church because Sunday after Sunday's sermons were not based on sound exegesis of Scripture, or getting to the true meaning of Scripture. Instead of taking the true meaning out of Scripture, week after week, the pastor read his meaning in to Scripture. That's called eisegesis. Yes, Scripture was being read and referred to. Yes, all the things the pastor was trying to support were not evil, like spreading the gospel, moral behavior, and service to others. But Scripture was not being handled accurately. Huge lessons on how the gospel works were being ignored in favor of the pastor's sermon titles. The sum of the pastor's teaching because of this resulted in an unmistakably false gospel. I recently took a look at the Facebook page of that church that we attended at one time, and I noted a few comments like, quote, We like attending there because of the sound biblical teaching. Unquote. I've heard others there say how they appreciate that the pastor, quote, preaches from the word, unquote. I've heard this so many times about other churches, too. Well, the bar of preaching from the word has apparently been set so low that the influences of personal agendas, traditions, the Christianized inductive Bible study approach, and postmodernism can all easily make it over the top of that bar. Removing 2,000 years of culture, traditions, the influence of pagan religions, politics, and deception off the top of Scripture to reveal its true meaning is not easy. I've used this word many times, but hermeneutics is the term used for the method one uses to interpret a literary text like the Bible. Everyone you and I, we all have our sets of hermeneutics that we follow, whether we know it or not. Even if it's, quote, I trust whatever my pastor tells me the Bible is saying, unquote. 
To make the word hermeneutics seem less intimidating, think of hermeneutics not as rules or guidelines, but as hacks for discovering truth in the Bible. For my non-millennial reader friends, a hack is a skill or shortcut that improves productivity and efficiency. The goal of using Bible hacks is to objectively discover the meaning of what the author, ultimately God, intended to send to the receiver, either the hearer or the reader of the scripture. A reliable set of hacks might include things like setting aside your 21st century Western cultural prejudices and approaching what was written from an objective, unbiased perspective. Ours is to understand what Scripture means, not to add to or pass judgment on what it means. The only bias an authentic child of God may carry with them is that the Bible contains divine truth. However, I need to understand this considering that sinful human beings with agendas and political pressures were used to translate the Bible into our modern languages. Established traditions and, quote, orthodox, unquote, doctrines heavily influenced the choices that these translators made. Also, I need to understand that Bible translators are subject to marketing departments of Bible publishing companies. The original languages the Bible was written in have many subtleties. Many different words in Greek, for example, have several different words in English that they can be translated into. Indeed, some words, such as logos, take a great deal of explanation in English to understand its intended meaning in Scripture. There's simply no one word in English that can communicate adequately what it means. Which word or words to select depends on the interpretation of the human translator. They're charged with understanding the immediate context while fitting the scripture being reviewed into the greater context. Because of this, it's good to have some understanding of the original languages to check out the translation you're using. Don't panic. You can learn this stuff. You've got the rest of your life to learn this stuff. There's other things that I consider when I try to understand or hack the truth in the Bible. Understanding the culture of the time and the place the scripture was written, who it was originally written to, the type of literature, the background of the human author credited with writing the scripture, are just a few examples. Today, although it may not be intentional, in some churches it's as though keeping the Bible a mystery is almost encouraged. Simply reading the Bible may be all that is emphasized. Understanding what you read is reduced to one principle. What does the scripture that stands out to you mean to you? After all, according to a self-centered perspective on how to run the universe, which is postmodernism, isn't it your own opinion that should define scripture? Isn't it okay if it means something different to someone else, or if a different scripture in the reading stood out to someone else? Next, one is encouraged to apply their uninformed observations of Scripture to their own life, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. People are encouraged to reinterpret the Bible for themselves in this way, turning the Bible into 
a how-to or self-help guide or even the book of me. That's an ugly thought. All of that rather than the book of Jesus. A poor approach to understanding the Bible leads to false teaching. In time, as people fail to return to the Bible to reaffirm its message, bad teaching is accepted and becomes established and a part of a tradition and culture. Whether a teaching is right or wrong, what the majority accept is considered orthodox. As people go their separate ways with their personal interpretations of Scripture, church splits and new denominations result. What's happened? There's only one truth as God sees it, like we've talked about in past podcasts. Why are people seeing their own truth in increasingly different ways? Simply stated, it's because people are placing a higher value on things like tradition, individualism, self-comfort, and loyalty to family and pastors than seeking truth no matter the cost. Understanding the need for going beyond a simple read and performing an exegesis of Scripture is to understand that great differences in worldviews exist between 21st century Americans and 1st century Middle Easterners, and that there are many things that do not translate well, word for word, from the original languages the letters that make up the Bible were written in, into English. In fact, some Greek words require a complete explanation to understand their original meaning. One group of translators may have as their priority to always stick to a word-for-word translation. Others may be more concerned with accurately translating the meaning from one language into English, even when it means using a few words instead of only one. As an example, just to get down in the weeds a little bit here, Take the word transliterated from Greek into English as onama. The simplest translation of that word is name. Onama is used in John 1, verse 12. Let me read that verse to you. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Again, that's John 1, verse 12. Well, how hard is it to just believe in a name? It's hard to deny that the letters J-E-S-U-S exist and that people are called by that name. It isn't even much harder to believe that a historically documented first century carpenter was named Jesus. It is tougher to believe that the first century carpenter was the Son of God who died on a Roman cross and came to life again three days later and paid the price for my sins. The point is that the Greek word onama means more than what someone is called. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, it can also be, quote, used for everything which the name covers, everything the thought or feeling of which is roused in the mind by mentioning, hearing, remembering the name. So, a more meaningful translation of John 1.12 might include several more words. Take this for example. This is my translation of John 1 verse 12. But as many as did receive him who believe on his name and all his name represents, 
To them, he gave the ability and power to become the children of God. So my, my translation added, and all his name represents, because that's literally what that word means. The greatest reason of all to perform a sound study of Scripture is to take responsibility for what you believe in, rather than entrusting the most important issues in life to someone else. Of course, this has not always been possible in history because of lack of Bibles printed in common languages and a lack of literacy. However, that's far from the case now, and we're responsible for the time we live in and not the past. I mean, I assume that uh, anybody who's listening utilizes the services of modern medical science and that you're driving around in cars. Well, both of those things (laughs) didn't exist either during these times that there was a lack of Bibles. And now, of course, we rely on those things. So we can also rely on being able to read and having access to Bible tools. If nowhere else online, there are great uh, Bible study aids. Well, what I'm getting at is that it's no accident that you and I live in this period of history. Bibles and multiple Bible study aids such as Greek lexicons, interlinear Bibles, concordances, dictionaries are readily available and they're free online. One can study the Bible now in ways that Martin Luther could not even dream of and in a fraction of the time. Truth seekers can seek and find the authentic truth like never before in history. As well spent as it may be, hacking the truth does take time. Leaders in the modern church have recognized not everyone has the time and skills necessary to study the Bible thoroughly. At the same time, they may still emphasize regular reading of the Bible, and naturally most church leaders want Christians to read the Bible with understanding. Unfortunately, a simple method for studying the Bible with understanding has evolved within the mainline and evangelical church into something which presents a clear and present danger to the soul. Where studying the Bible is concerned, most Christians today have been, at least informally, trained to study the Bible utilizing a faulty version of inductive reasoning. They may not have ever even heard the term inductive Bible study before, but many Christians have been so thoroughly indoctrinated in this approach that it's difficult for most to even imagine a different way of thinking of how to determine what God's Word is saying to us. The type of inductive reasoning used in Christianized inductive Bible study I'm referring to is not the inductive reasoning of the secular world. Classic inductive reasoning says that a proven premise will supply the evidence necessary to support the belief that something is true. Cops use this kind of uh, reasoning in their investigations. For, For example, a premise may be that all life forms on earth are carbon based. This premise is firmly grounded in well tested and observed fact. The premise would support an inductive reasoning conclusion that any life form discovered in the future will also be carbon-based. 
Because many Bible students are currently and have in the past used inductive Bible study to effectively understand the Bible, it's necessary for me to define exactly what I mean by the term in this podcast. Unfortunately, the term Christianized inductive Bible study, like the term Christian itself, has more than one meaning. Serious students of the Bible may correctly use inductive reasoning to come closer to the truth. Others, probably the majority today, are misusing a popularized version of what is also termed as inductive Bible study and coming to some very bad conclusions. In the church, the inductive Bible study movement had its origins during the late 19th century. Indeed, it was developed with the best of intentions, and if the intended method was adhered to with discipline today, it would continue to be a sound method for seeking the truth held in Scripture. A guy named David R. Bauer is the dean of the School of Biblical Interpretation at Osbury Theological Seminary, wrote, Inductive Bible study shares with responsible exegesis everywhere a concern for literary context and for the precise meaning of biblical terms derived through proper word study. The distinctiveness of inductive Bible study involves its specific and purposeful attempts to maintain radical openness to the meaning of the biblical text wherever the evidence may lead, its various methodologies emphasize, and the intentional way in which it seeks to relate the multiple components of Bible study to one another so as to provide an effective framework for the study of the scriptures. The Christianized inductive Bible study I am referring to in this book is far from what Mr. Bauer is referring to. I argue that the modern, popularized evangelical Christian version of the inductive Bible study has almost nothing to do with inductive reasoning and doesn't come close to what the theologians of the late 19th century intended it to be. That's because almost every conclusion that's made using the modern, popular version turns a blind eye to sound exegetical principles and instead emphasizes a personal application in the individual life of a Christian or the church. The evolved popularized version starts with a specific event taking place or statement being made in scripture passages. Then, that specific event or statement is used to define a general principle. Finally, that general principle is applied to the Bible student's life, like the individual student's life, in a very specific, personal way. For example, Using this method, let's say that one day during my devotions, I read Colossians 4.1. This is what Colossians 4.1 says. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. From this verse, I conclude that so long as one treats their slaves fairly and justly, that according to the Apostle Paul, There's no problem with owning another human being as one owns any other property. In fact, such a system is based on the way things work in heaven. Owning more than one slave and treating them well 
is an opportunity to serve God as I attempt to imitate the behavior of my master in heaven. You know, I consider checking Craigslist to see if anyone has slaves for sale. Of course, to arrive at this idiotic conclusion, (laughs) I need to completely ignore historical and cultural perspective and the use of metaphor. While some look at the Bible as a mystical book that has power associated with it, they also look at the Bible as being a self-help guide. Christians are taught that whatever it is in life you need help with, that the Bible will provide you with the answers. Help with your marriage? No problem. See Genesis chapter 2 in the Song of Solomon. Money? Just tithe. I once had a youth group leader who was stressing this point by showing the group how the Bible can even help someone with instructions for going to the bathroom when you're out camping. Well, while the Bible is full of truth and can change your entire worldview and how you approach life, thinking of it as a mystical self-help guide that will help you solve all your worldly problems one by one is way off base. That's not the Bible's purpose. Yet, that's often what the inductive Bible study method leads to. The Christianized inductive Bible study method routinely shows up during Sunday morning sermons. Generations of pastors have now handed down this approach to understanding the Bible. When a pastor reads scripture, then superimposes himself or the members of the congregation over the top of the main Bible character mentioned in the passage, they are using the Christianized inductive study method. For example, the book of Acts chapter 12 tells the story of the apostle Peter being unjustly incarcerated by King Herod. While he was in prison, many people were praying for him. Peter was miraculously set free by an angel. Using the inductive method regarding this story about Peter, the pastor may include the following. Quote, There are two things we can know from this story. One, if you're going through trials, God is always with you. And two, if many believers join together in prayer, they can set captives free, whether from physical prisons or spiritual bonds. This coming week, we need to strive to be the kind of people who are joining one another in prayer for others. Typical Bible studies are structured to utilize Christian inductive reasoning. Normally, someone will be asked to read a scripture, and then the leader will ask the group to say what the scripture means to them, to each individual. Although there may be common themes, if there are 10 people present, you will normally get at least 10 different interpretations of what the passage means. For example, let's again consider the Peter going to prison story recorded in Acts 12. Using inductive reasoning, or at least the Christian inductive Bible study method, one person, the first person in the group that's called on, may say, well, God always takes care of his own, even if he has to do a miracle. The next person might say, we can take comfort in the fact that regardless of our circumstances, God is there for us. One wife may enter in. I feel like I am Peter, a prisoner locked up behind bars, and God wants my husband 
to set me free. Yeah, no, I'm not being ridiculous there. I actually heard something close to this once. Someone else who reads a little bit before this passage might observe, you know, before this happened with Peter, the Bible says he'd been doing a lot of praying. I think God really pays attention to those who have a rich prayer life. I need to have a prayer life like Peter. Yet another will add, Peter was fulfilling Jesus' great commission. God honored his obedience by sending an angel to rescue him. God will honor us in the same way if we follow Jesus' directions. Well, I could go on for another half hour utilizing this special Christianized form of inductive reasoning on this short story to relay dozens of possibilities of postmodern interpretations. You know, nothing I just said is particularly bad. Some of what I said by way of these examples may in fact be true. It's just that it's not necessarily what Acts chapter 12 says or means. Well, usually after a few affirming head nods during the Bible study, everyone is thanked for their insights, as though there apparently could be no wrong interpretation of the Scripture being considered. Many Bible study and devotional guides, whether on paper or online, encourage the Christianized inductive approach to interpreting Scripture. The Navigators is an international interdenominational Christian ministry that's been around since the early 1930s. Their stated purpose is to, quote, help others come to know and grow in Him, Jesus, as they navigate through life, unquote. Here's what the navigators say about how to study Scripture. This is a quote. One of the best ways to get to the solid food of the Word is through the inductive Bible study. The inductive method makes observations on a passage of Scripture and then draws conclusions based on those observations. Commonly, this method is defined by three parts, observation, interpretation, and application. Unquote. The Navigator's article on how to study Scripture utilizing the inductive method provides an example. That example is based on 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what that verse says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. So, after checking the background of the scripture you're studying, the navigators encourage you to paraphrase the verse. Here's the example that they used. This is navigator's paraphrase of the verse that I just read, 1 Timothy 1, 1. Paul, a proclaimer of Jesus Christ, obeying the instructions of God, who is the one who saves us, and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Next, after answering questions you may have about the passage, cross-referencing other passages, and writing down your insights, you're encouraged to come up with a personal application for the verse. Here's the Navigator's example. This is the Navigator's example of the personal application of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Just like Paul, 
I need to recognize that I am tasked with being Christ's ambassador, authorized and sent out with a divine message. I can only be effective in my mission if I am aware of my status as a divinely appointed witness. Okay, so just to review all of that from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of our God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, right? Just like Paul, I need to recognize that I am tasked with being Christ's ambassador, authorized and sent out with a divine message. I can only be effective in my mission if I am aware of my status as a divinely appointed witness. That is the personal application we are to take away from that, at least as their example. Well, the Christianized inductive Bible study method has morphed within the church from a truth-seeking tool to a self-pleasing or self-help tool. You may have noticed in these examples the me-centered results in the Christian inductive method of interpreting Scripture. That's because today, a sermon, within evangelical circles anyway, is not finished until the pastor tells me how a passage in the Bible should be applied in my life in the coming week. A Bible study is not complete if I don't go home knowing how to apply a passage of Scripture to me personally. And a devotional is not motivating unless it provides a lesson for how to help me navigate through life. How is it the Bible all came to be about me. Every sermon on Sunday, regardless of the passage being taught, has to do with me. Every devotional based on Scripture, every Bible study, every guide that accompanies my journaling about Scripture, all seem to center on my life. One week, my life is to be compared to Daniel. Another, Paul. The next week, the pastor tells me what life would be for me if I was more like Abraham. And then, if I could only be more like David, I could be a man after God's own heart. Every problem could be overcome if I could only be like all of these people. And yet, the problems just keep coming. And I continue to fail along with absolutely everyone else who views Scripture in this way. Scripture by Scripture, as I work my way through the Bible, using the Christianized inductive method, I change the meaning of every verse, chapter, and book. The Bible ceases to be a book containing the story of Jesus, the history behind why we need Him, and the good news of what He did and made possible. It's changed from a book containing the explanation of where we all came from, the character and nature of the Almighty God who made us, and how it will all end into the book of me. As every verse in the Bible can stand alone under this method and be used in my life, memory verses in the book of me are like magical spells and incantations. Practitioners of these arts are trained to pull them out of context if necessary to apply these verses, these magical spells and incantations, to any situation in life that arises. The church uses the Christian inductive method to turn the Bible into an instruction manual or blueprint of how God's church should operate. 
This is the case regardless of who the scripture originally concerned, what the historical context it was in, who it was originally written to, or the cultural practices of the time. For example, to use the navigator's example, 1 Timothy 1.1 I just talked about, when one uses the Christianized inductive method, it doesn't seem to matter that all we know for sure is that the Apostle Paul began his letter to Timothy by establishing his apostolic authority, rather than beginning the letter merely addressing himself as Paul, the tent-making friend of Timothy. Paul was simply pointing out that he was not writing as the businessman he also was, but he was writing as one who, through the divine determination of Jesus, holds the ultra-rare office of apostle and speaks for Jesus. How far off is this normal, natural, customary way we understand language from how the Christianized inductive method says 1 Timothy 1.1 should be applied to one's life? Remember, here's how Paul's letter opens to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of our God and Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. And again, here's what the scripture could mean to me according to the Christianized inductive Bible study method, per the navigators. Just like Paul, I need to recognize that I am tasked with being Christ's ambassador, authorized and sent out with a divine message. I can only be effective in my mission if I am aware of my status as a divinely appointed witness. There may be scripture elsewhere in the Bible that supports these thoughts. But you will not find this message contained in 1 Timothy 1.1. My proper response to 1 Timothy 1.1 on how to apply that scripture to my own life would be to understand that Paul is writing using his title of apostle. I am not Paul. Paul had a very unique role in history. I was not appointed an apostle by Jesus to speak on Jesus' behalf like Paul was. So, I need to look at what Paul has to say in this letter as having the authority of Jesus behind it. That's how that verse should be applied. The important task of determining what Scripture is saying is worth the time required for careful study of the Bible. Although there's much specific helpful knowledge and instruction contained in Scripture, the primary purpose of the Bible is not to serve as an instruction manual for the individual or blueprint for the corporate church. It's only through careful study that one can determine what a passage means and how it may or may not apply to them. Today, unfortunately, Much of what takes place in the church is based on such Christianized inductive reasoning and not on what is being communicated to the followers of Jesus by the author, or capital A author, God, through Scripture. As the Apostle John pointed out, Jesus is the Word. That statement is packed full of so much meaning. More than one who has only read a popular English translation of the Gospel of John would ever know. As many of you already know, the Greek word for word is transliterated into English as logos. Logos has many meanings. They're subject to the context of where and how it's used. 
The word logos used in John 1.1 is to say this. Logos, the plan for all created reality containing the divine expression of God's reasoning and motives, existed in the beginning. But here's the deal. The word logos is also used in John 1.1 as meaning the author and planner of the plan. In English, you know, we have a number of words, including nouns, that when you add an er to them, they work the same way logos does in John 1.1. Like a plan is a noun, and a planner is the person who makes the plan. How different does the following sound from simply translating logos as word? This is my translation of John 1.1. The plan for all created reality containing the divine expression of God's motives and reasoning existed at the beginning. And this plan existed with God. And God was the planner or author of the plan for all created reality. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, the Apostle John tells us that the Logos, or God, the author or planner of all created reality, became flesh, or a human being. That was Jesus. In the beginning, God expressed himself through creating absolutely everything out of complete nothingness. Later in John chapter 1, we learn that God expressed himself through the law of Moses. Finally, we learn that God expressed who he is in the form of a human being when he became flesh. The entire Old and New Testaments contain the divine expression of God's reasoning and motives. Jesus was and is the divine expression of God's reasoning and motives. Keeping in mind that the entire Bible is to be taken as God's communication to us about who He is, what His motives are for doing what He does, how He reasons, how should I approach the Bible? In a way that I believe the Bible was written to help me be a better person and have an easy time of it here on earth? Or in a way that I can know who God is? Approaching the Bible as though Jesus, the Logos or planner who became flesh, is the star of the show, and the show being God's plan of all created reality, is life-changing. Getting that is at the core of seeking first the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom, instead of seeking our own kingdom. Approaching understanding the Bible in this way will cause you to focus on Him rather than yourself. It'll take your eyes off the present temporal world and start you refocusing on the eternal and imperishable. It'll cause false gods to fall. What you'll experience is not the result of a technique. It's the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. As the authentic Jesus comes into view through your studies and becomes more important, holding on to the things of this world become less important. That includes habits and material possessions or the quest for them. As you study, actively looking for his motivations and his reasoning, his motivations such as love and mercy become your own motivations. 
you'll discover how worthy He is to follow and how dependent you will always be on Him. And you'll start to get how He reasons from His unique perspective of the eternal, all-knowing, all-seeing, omnipresent Creator of everything that exists. If you've been using the SOAP, the SOAP, Christianized Inductive Bible Study Method, and you feel like you're the type of person that's just got to have some kind of system, I want to give you an alternative to consider. It's the Read Bible Study Method. R, this is R-E-A-D, Read. R stands for Read. (laughs) Read the Scripture carefully with understanding being the priority as opposed to sticking to a through-the-Bible-in-one-year plan being the priority. Take time with what you are reading to understand it. E stands for exegesis. I'll study Scripture with the intention of getting things out of it instead of reading things into it. And I'll use a sound set of authentic truth hacks, hermeneutics. Like, I won't read my life into Scripture. One of my highest priorities has got to be committing to discovering the authentic truth no matter where it leads me. Another should be to recognize my existing beliefs and prejudices. Also, to acknowledge that my present beliefs could be wrong. This gets easier as I discover I and everyone else have been wrong a lot. But God has never been wrong. I need to let the Bible speak for itself rather than seeking to find scriptures to support traditional teachings or what I want to believe. I need to notice what I am not reading and what has previously been inferred into scripture. Next we come to the letter A, which stands for ask. When I ask myself what I have learned from the passage about the divine expression, the Logos, God's plan, starring the Logos, Jesus. What is God doing? What have I learned about how He reasons, how He operates, and what His motives are? Those are the things that I'll meditate on. Finally, D stands for determine. Determine to react appropriately to what I have learned. What is an appropriate reaction to the the discovery of authentic truth. Normally, unlike forcing a new behavior that you think you should adopt to be more holy, how to respond to authentic truth takes care of itself. It'll likely cause an organic, natural reaction within you. What will that be? Will you simply thank Jesus? Express awe and adoration? Be filled full of wonder at how much more complex he is than you ever thought before. Are you going to become giddy by understanding that he has everything under control and it's not up to you to save the universe? Will you experience relief when you discover that he is working through you even when you're not even aware of it? That's because you're appointed to good works by God. They're irresistible. You can't help yourself. Or will you drop to your knees, not having the words to express what you're feeling about a God that words can't contain? 
Will your reaction be a natural overflowing demonstration of Jesus' love to others? Will it be that you can't contain your excitement of telling others about the gospel? I'm not saying that anyone should expect this to happen every time one studies the Bible, because it's not the primary purpose of Scripture. But in your quest for authentic truth, you'll experience conviction from time to time. Maybe there's some behavior that the Holy Spirit is bringing to one's attention that he would like him or her to alter. This too, if it happens, will be an organic natural feeling, internal reaction to what you've studied. There's something that's just as likely, or probably even more likely, to happen to you than experiencing conviction as you search for authentic truth. You know what that is? It's experiencing freedom. Depending on how entrenched you've been in the unmerited religious and cultural practices of Christianity, you may find that the Holy Spirit will use the authentic truth to free you from the bondage of such burdens. The cultural and religious practices and beliefs that in the name of Jesus have wrongly been placed on you. This may even happen to the new authentic child of God as they are freed from their preconceived ideas about Christianity and what it means to follow Jesus. In summary, Within Christianity, there are many views on the Bible, what it is, and how we should read it or study it. If one is an authentic child of God, they understand that the Bible, in its original form, contains the inspired Word of God, God's message and plan that He's revealed to mankind. The job of the truth seeker is to understand the original meaning of the author of the Bible, which is ultimately God. It's not to judge what the Bible says, to read into it, or to fit it and what it says into orthodox doctrines of the church. You know, retrofit the Bible into doctrines. That's just the opposite. The most popular method within the evangelical church today to study the Bible is the Christianized inductive Bible study method, even though people don't even know they're doing that sometimes. The conclusions one may reach using the popular form of this method is only limited by the user's imagination. The method is a good fit for anyone inadvertently seeking to create their own false god. What an unfortunate deal. I'm going to talk about one of the major and very common pitfalls of the Christian inductive Bible study method in the next podcast. And until then, may God bless you and keep you safe. May he lead you into truth and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. Dot com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.